Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, March 19th, we are studying Matthew chapter 23, verses 13 through 39. With exacting and cutting precision, Jesus speaks seven woes against the scribes and Pharisees for their blind hypocrisy. Such harsh language, however, gives Jesus no pleasure. Rather, he laments the fact that Jerusalem has rejected him. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Reverend Dr. Adam Filipek. Pastor Filipek serves at Holy Cross and Emmanuel Lutheran Churches in Lidgerwood, North Dakota. Pastor Filipek, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you, Pastor Apple, and greetings to our listeners in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who was, who is, and who is to come. Pastor Filipek, as we get started this morning, give us some context here in Matthew chapter 23. What do we need to know going into the text? So in Matthew's gospel, just the immediate context of Jesus' life and ministry, and indeed Matthew's gospel, to remind our readers, we're in the midst of Holy Week here. In chapter 21, Jesus has undergone the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and the crowd that has been following him has spread the tree branches down on the road and are now shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And the people of Jerusalem, though, they are stirred up with commotion about Jesus. And Pastor Apple, to be quite frank, the last time the crowd was stirred up with Jesus in Matthew's gospel in Jerusalem was back in chapter 2, when the wise men came searching for the king of the Jews who was to be born in Bethlehem. Well, you all kind of know how that turned out. The slaughter of the holy innocents. That is, a bunch of innocent people, babies, die. And now, for the second time in Matthew's Gospel, Jerusalem is abuzz again. And we as readers, astute readers, are are worried again that innocent people here might die with Jesus coming into Jerusalem again and with such a commotion. So, when Jesus enters Jerusalem, you and I are already sort of looking as readers forward to a, a death of an innocent. Of course, after this... Jesus enters the Jerusalem temple, but he does not just enter the temple. No, no, no. Rather, he brings with him lame and blind, even children. He brings with him, that is, those who are not allowed by Jewish law in the temple. They would be considered either unclean or far too young to be in the temple. And Jesus does this so that he can show the world that these unclean are those who would be considered unclean now might have access fully to God. Of course, this foreshadows then what will later appear in Matthew chapter 20 with a symbolization of the tearing of the curtain temple in two from top to bottom so that all people, every nation, every language, every tribe, we who are unclean might finally at long last have access to God's eternal presence, which has not happened since Adam and Eve were ousted in Genesis 3 from the garden, making humanity unclean by the fall into sin. Well, of course, the chief priests and the Pharisees and the elders, they do not like unclean people in the holy place of God. And so they do not like, in fact, I would say they hate and loathe Jesus for this and for other things as well. Well, right away then, you can see the sharp contrast between the Pharisees, what they are teaching and preaching, which is simply how to purify yourselves by following the works of the law, believing all the while that you can actually follow the law perfectly. Contrast that with what Jesus is preaching, purification based on his work of forgiving sins through being high and lifted up on the cross for all of humanity, for the least of these, for you, for me, for all people. And so Jesus, leaving the temple, immediately curses then the fig tree so as to show this stark contrast in the teaching and preaching of the Pharisees and his own. Or if you want to put it a little differently, 
all of Israel, the fig tree, is not producing the fruit of repentance and faith that comes through the pure preaching and teaching of God's word. And the chief priests and the elders and the Pharisees are to blame for distorting it. So they in Jerusalem will be cursed, like that fig tree, to death because of it. Now, more on this, because this is actually the heart of what we're going to talk about today. More on this as we go into our text, but this is sort of the, the background for that part. And then, as you go through the rest of chapter 21 and 22, Jesus tells a series of parables about outsiders and outcasts becoming insiders, and those who are insiders becoming outsiders. That is to say that Jerusalem and the people that he came for, first and foremost, are rejecting Jesus, abandoning Jesus, and giving up their rightful claim then as God's children and people. And it is going then to be taken away from them and given to those who, man, the chief priests and the elders and the Pharisees would consider the most unclean of unclean, the Gentiles. So in telling these parables, Jesus is hated all the more. The hatred intensifies. And the Pharisees then begin to entangle, try to entangle him in a plot about questions of with paying taxes. But he quickly puts them to shame by giving them the truthfulness of his word and a marvelous answer to their question. And the same can be said then for the Sadducees who next come and try to trap him with a question about the resurrection. And Jesus again, with his truthful words, gives a marvelous answer and puts them to shame. And finally, third time, lawyer tries to trap him in the question about the greatest commandment, and he, like those before him, are put to shame so much to the degree that after this lawyer, no one dare ask Jesus another question. And so by the time chapter 23 rolls around, the Jewish leaders absolutely detest Jesus. I mean, the hatred for him has intensified, so much so that they actively try to put this innocent man to death. But before they do that, Jesus speaks a scathing word of condemnation against them. Seven words, actually, of condemnation, the precise number that Scripture uses to signify completeness, totality. And with these words of woe, which we're going to look at here in just a moment today, Jesus brings to fulfillment he begins to bring to fulfillment anyway. The parables that he had just spoken to them concerning outsiders becoming insiders and insiders becoming outsiders. Let's go ahead and take a look at the text then. Again, we're in Matthew chapter 23, beginning at verse 13. Jesus continues, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. First, clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. 
Thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's the text for today, Matthew chapter 23, verses 13 through 39. So, Pastor Philippic, as we get started, perhaps the the first question, we've got seven woes. Probably the first thing we need to make sure we understand is what does the word woe mean biblically? Yeah, this is a very, very important question to understand because the way that we use the word woe is quite a bit different than the way Scripture uses it and means it. And when you, we usually use the word woe, uh, we usually use it to say and indicate that something's like gone wrong, right? We're in great distress or sorrow over something, sort of like, woe is me, I had a flat tire on the side of the road and my cell phone battery is dead, and I had to walk an hour to get help. Oh, I'm having a bad day. Woe is me. But when Scripture uses the word woe, it is synonymous with death. I mean, think Isaiah 6 on this one, right? After Isaiah beheld the perfect and holy Lord sitting in the temple high and lifted up, and he hears the angels calling back and forth to one another in the temple, Holy, 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 Lord God of Sabaoth, the heaven and earth are full of your glory, and the smoke fills the temple. He cries out, Woe is me! I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. In other words, if you break down what Isaiah is saying... It amounts to this. After seeing and hearing all that's going on, I'm a dead man because I have seen the holy and perfect God. And a sinner cannot stand in the presence of God or see the full unveiled presence of the Lord and live. So dear listeners, please understand that Jesus is not merely distressing over the teachings, the false teachings of the Pharisees. He is doing that, but it's much more than that. He is rather condemning them, or better yet, pronouncing the just and logical conclusion of what they believe and teach others to believe. And the logical conclusion of their works righteousness, they're trusting that they can follow the law and do follow the law perfectly and thus are pleasing in the eyes of God, is death. If you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. Woe to you. Death to you, scribes and Pharisees. That's what Jesus is, is saying here. So very strong words then, as, as we've heard, but, but that really heightens what we need to understand. So there are seven of these woes, and the first two seem to go together pretty well. They're both very short there in verses 13 through 15, and they both speak of the scribes and the Pharisees either shutting the kingdom of heaven on the one hand, or on the other hand, leading them into leading people into hell. What's going on with those first two woes, Pastor Philippeck? Yeah, so this is a nice way to start this, because this is actually how he's going to end with the lament over Jerusalem, with where their belief has not only led them, but where their belief has given expression in the teachings and led other people. So this is, this is a condemnation against the scribes and the Pharisees, because they are the ones that have the knowledge of the law, and they have the knowledge of the prophets. They are to know the law of God inside and out. And having this knowledge of God's word inside and out, they should know that humanity is steeped in sin. We are, by nature, sinful and unclean. Thought, word, deed. We cannot be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. We need someone to help us. We need someone to save us. We need someone to rescue us and purify us from our sin. And the God in His great mercy 
has promised to send that seed of the woman, that promised offspring, that Savior of the nations, a Messiah, who will save us, who will cleanse us from our sin. The scribes and the Pharisees, though, while knowing the law and the prophets, actually reject this. They believe, at best, that Jesus is not the promised Messiah. Or at worst, they believe that they can, in fact, obtain perfection or be perfect by simply following the law. That they somehow have the ability in and of themselves to do that, and God sees that and he is pleased with them because they're perfect like their Heavenly Father's perfect. Or they believe perhaps a combination of the two. And not only do they believe that, and here's where the, the condemnation comes, but they also are teaching others this. And in so doing, they reject Jesus, and they set up in themselves and others an ungodly trusting in their own works to save them and their own abilities. They walk not in the narrow road that leads to life, who is Jesus, but they walk a rather broad road, and they walk the broad road and teach others to walk that broad road, the way that leads to death. For apart from Jesus, apart from his cleansing sacrifice on the cross, there is no hope. There is no cleansing. There is no purification. There is no forgiveness. There is no life. Hence, Jesus says in this section, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You shut the kingdom of heaven. You don't enter, nor do you let people. And even though you have proselytized them, you still make them children of hell. And he adds this this interesting phrase at the end of this, um, twice as much a child of hell. Well, like, what, what is with this twice as much a child of hell? Well, this is a way that Jesus says the scribes and the Pharisees have the law and the prophets and yet reject them. But the ones that they teach, they don't have readily accessible at their fingertips the law and the prophets. Right? They can't go on the shelf and pull off their Bible, or in this case, their, their scroll, and just read what it says. No, they're dependent upon these preachers and teachers of, of God's Word and they learn secondhand from them, right? They don't get to read it firsthand. And so in, in listening to the Pharisees then, you have this gross misunderstanding and misinterpretation of Scripture that's being habituated into the people. And I'm sure, you know, we can, Pastor Apple, spend as, as much time or as little time, depending upon what we have, on this. There's plenty of things like this we could touch on in our own day and age concretely and specifically, examples that, that are going on here and now. Um, but I, I yield that choice to you because you know, this is this big section and chapter, so uh, give you, I'll stop there and give you a chance to respond to this. Well, maybe just briefly here, because like I said, we do have a big chunk of text, but briefly, as a, as a pastor, as a preacher, as one who teaches, these words are, I've always heard it's a very strong warning. To, to pastors and preachers to, to watch out for what they teach, lest they not enter themselves and lest they lead others not to enter and, and toward hell, which is, it's a, I mean, this is a very scary text for, for pastors, in my opinion. And, and I, I think that, that's oh, pretty it clear. Is. And I mean, St. Paul says it kind of this way, that um, he should guard it lest he himself be disqualified at the end of his life um, in preaching all this. So this is, this is filled in the Gospels and the Epistles. And really, this is, this is a word to, um, you know, the teachers of the law in our day and age, you know, pastors, to guard the doctrine. Like, guarding the doctrine means to p- teach and preach only what Jesus says. Because you have no hope apart from Jesus. What you have is your own works, your own understanding, your own interpretations of things, all of this sort of stuff. So there's really only two religions of the world. There's a religion of works, and there's a religion of the grace. And man loves works. We love to think that we know that we're smart enough, that we can work hard enough, and if you just listen to us, and listen to all the different world religions and what's going on. It, it is totally morality, how to be a good person, and all those sorts of things. And while Christianity has... That component of morality, Christianity's substance is not, uh, I can be perfect if I just simply try and apply myself to the law. Christianity is not about a 12-step program for a better marriage, or it's not about how to have well-adjusted children or anything like that. But you hear these sorts of things in the pulpit, right? Or you hear the different things about... Um, all you need to do in order to be saved is, is, is accept Jesus into your heart or, or pray this sinner's hat, prayer or things like this. But this turns 
all, everything into a work of man. I'm suddenly dependent upon this, where the heart and soul of Christianity is I don't have any good in me. No matter how hard I try, I cannot be perfect as my Heavenly Father is perfect. And when I sin, when I stumble at one little thing, I'm guilty of breaking the whole law. So if everything depends on me for my salvation, then you and I both know how dependable we are, and we both know where you and I will end up. We will end up in the hell of fire, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. But if everyone, everything depends upon Christ, who is trustworthy, who is pure, who is holy, who is radiant, and who is, per, who is perfection himself, if everything depends on he and his word, then... It is by grace, not because I've earned it, but because God has loved me unto death by being high and lifted up on the cross, and nothing, not angels, not demons, not height, not depth, nothing can snatch that out of my hands. This is what we're told to guard, because there's no precious gem more valuable than Christ, who gives life, forgiveness, and conquering over our enemy, sin, death, and the devil. And that that is so important to recall, especially in, in our day and age, where when we think about holding on to the truth of what God has given, it, it's very easy to think about things like, well, let's make sure that we that we teach correctly concerning when life begins and ends, and that we teach correctly as to what God defines marriage to be and, and what it means to to be a man or a woman and that to be a man or to be a woman is a different thing. When you think about the errors that are out there in, in society, gross errors, it, it's very easy to think that that holding onto those things is the full sum of what it means to guard the doctrine. And, and when I say this, I'm, those things are important, that we would teach the truth. And we dare not, we dare not teach falsely on those matters. But, but in so doing, the, the trap, I think, the temptation is to forget exactly what you're talking about. That, that to guard the doctrine ultimately must be centered around Christ and what he has done, who he is, that he comes to give us a righteousness that is his, not so that we would be saved by a righteousness that is our own. And to hold on to that doctrine, the gospel, which is what distinguishes Christianity from everything else in the world, this, this is ultimately what the Pharisees have, have forgotten, what they've let go on, and ultimately why they're leading people to hell rather than to eternal life, because they've, they've ignored Christ. And I, I, so, I, I, again, just to, I, I, that's such an important reminder, Pastor Philippeck. Yeah, and I don't want to sidetrack us too much, but this is just it. And all of those little things, I'll just make this one other comment since you said this about um, teaching and preaching the truth. We forget that Christianity is not, not a bunch of propositional truths, I, I, you know, I, statements by which I can affirm or, de- or deny, but the substance of those statements is Christ himself. I mean, Jesus, you know, truth is not an abstract concept or a statement. Jesus says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Truth is a person. And so when you start talking about all those other truths, even something as simple as marriage or gender and any of these things that we want to hold on to, I mean, you start running with these things and looking in Scripture, and you'll find like in Ephesians chapter 5, after giving this beautiful thing about husbands love your wives, as Christ loved the church, and wives submit to your husbands, all these different things, Paul says at the end, is, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and his church. I mean, this is really all about Jesus. However, footnote, yeah, here's, here's a little nugget for you. Husbands love your wives, and wives do it, see to it you respect your husbands. <laughs> so... <laughs> Right. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. When the, the doctrine is, is one, the, the teaching is one. It centers in, in Christ and Him crucified. This is what He says when He talks about, well, what is the Old Testament all about? It's all about Christ crucified and raised for the proclamation of repentance and forgiveness in His name. There, there you go. And it's all one. And so we hold on to, to all of it. You're exactly right. So, Pastor Philippeck, as you said, we've got a lot to get through today. And we've got two minutes here on this side of the break. So, we're coming to the, the third woe. And, and maybe maybe the place to start with this, so we'll pick up part of it here and then the rest on the other side, is what's the background here? Jesus is referring to a practice of the Pharisees. Give us the, the background as to what the, the Pharisees were practicing, and then on the other side we'll pick up what Jesus' point is. Sure. So just a quick background in this whole swearing of O's business. We'll get back into this uh, in greater detail, like I said, after the break. This goes back to some of the things Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 already on the Sermon on the Mount. But there's this kind of swearing of the oath that Jesus is talking about here. It's a little bit different 
then, um, you know, what we would say, uh, put your hand on the Bible and swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Um, the Jewish system of oaths is a lot more complex and elaborate. And I don't want to get bogged down, especially since we only have two minutes in specifics here. But let me just briefly say this. The Pharisees are teaching that by swearing on the gold in the temple or the gift that is on the altar, it is absolutely binding. You must do what you have said and, or what you have said must be absolutely true. But if you only swear by, like, the little furnishings of the temple or the, the building itself, well, then you're not really fully bound, totally under obligation to truly do what you've said, or you know, what you've said is absolutely true. In essence, you're kind of able to, to lie a little bit and still be okay, uh, still be perfect according to the law, because that's not the important thing. The important thing, of course, it, it, we all know, is the gold and the gifts that, that you've brought in and that sit on that altar. And so Jesus is going to speak to this weird system of, of, of thought here that they have about, I can actually um, lie and still be okay. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KFO. We're going to pick that thought up on the other side of the break about what Jesus is going to say about this odd system of oaths here in Matthew chapter 23. We're going to take that short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. On this Thursday, March 19th, we're looking at Matthew chapter 23, verses 13 through 39, with Pastor Adam Filipek of Holy Cross and Emmanuel Lutheran Churches in Lidgerwood, North Dakota. Pastor Filipek, prior to the break, we began to look at this odd system of oaths that the Pharisees and scribes had in terms of what you could swear by and which oaths were the most binding and which were not as binding. So that's the system. What does Jesus say is wrong about this system in his third woe? Okay, so just just maybe a, a brief comment here about oaths. I don't want to get too bogged down in oaths, but our Lord does talk about in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and 10 and Numbers, Leviticus, all these different things, where, where there might be an appropriate time to swear an oath uh, on the truth, which would be, uh, you know, for for the truthfulness of God's word or for the benefit of your neighbor. So there, there's those types of things, but that's not what's really being addressed here. What's being addressed here is exactly what you said, that there's, there's this weird system that, eh, how binding is my, is my oath? Do I really have to tell the whole truth or not? And Jesus essentially says, whoa, 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 whoa. You're thinking, it's all backwards here, man. It's not the stuff that you bring and give. Notice the emphasis of the Pharisees on, on works again. It's what I bring, the gold. It's the gift. And he's, he's saying, no, 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 it's not, it's not the stuff you bring and the stuff you give. It's not the stuff of man. It's not gold. It's not the gifts. That's the more, most important thing. But rather, it's the stuff of God. Or if you want to put it more simply or perhaps in, in a greater view of the temple, why is the gold and the gifts in the temple value and holy? Valuable and holy. Is it not because those gifts are brought to the holy place? Right? Those gifts don't have really any intrinsic value in and of themselves or anything like that. They're not valuable because you brought them. They're actually made valuable and holy by the fact that they now dwell in the holy place, the the temple where, where God actually dwells, right? The place where... God dwells to make everything and everyone holy. So the emphasis is not on you, dear Pharisee, and what you bring, but rather on what, who God is and what he does here in this temple, making things holy. And he is the one, not you, Pharisee, who is holy and makes everything and everyone holy, including you who are unclean and the unclean, unclean things that you have brought into this temple. So when you, you know, swear by anything in the temple, Jesus is 
is saying here. You're actually swearing, and if you trace this back to the Old Testament and the Old, you're actually swearing on the place where God put his name and his eternal presence. So when you swear by the temple, and you say, oh, it's not that binding because I'm just, you know, swearing by a building or, or temple furnitures, you're actually downplaying what is supposed to be there, what I've given to be there, what I've placed there, <clears throat> my name and my presence, so no, you can't just swear by the temple or its furnishings and lie, because I am trustworthy, and my word is truth. And no, you can't even swear by the stuff you bring in it either, gold and gifts, and then lie about it, because I have made those things holy by my presence, which now dwells with you here in the temple. So, what you are actually advocating and teaching the people, Pharisees, is actually to blaspheme my name. And to love the stuff more than they love the one who gave them that stuff and the one who dwells here now with them. That is why Jesus tells them on the Sermon on the Mount on, uh, and you know, the Beatitudes, let your yes be yes and your no be no, back in chapter 5. Hence, you should always just speak and live by the truth, who is Jesus. Whatever he has said, whatever he has done, his person and work, live by that and speak that. That's how you should kind of understand this whole business of swearing oaths uh, in the temple. So Jesus then moves from this matter of oaths in woe number three into woe number four, and he brings up the Pharisees' practice concerning tithing. What's Jesus' point as he talks about tithing things like mint and dill and cumin? Yeah, and these are, again, um, these are, again, important laws, and you can see that, right, Jesus is talking about matters of tithing, like you said, or giving the first fruits of what you have received, the first tenth of what you have been given, according to Levitical law. Leviticus 27, you know, Numbers 18 on this, Deuteronomy 12, so on and so forth. There's multiple places where this law occurs, but it's all the same thing. It's a concrete recognition that the Lord has given you all that you have, and all that you need to support this body and life, and you give back to God before you do anything else, before you eat that cumin, before you sell that cumin, anything like that. Before you do any of that stuff, you give as a thanks to God for what he has given, a tenth of what he has given to you. So what you would often do is then they, they would weigh this out. You'd bring in all your, all your spices and things, and they would weigh that out to the tenth, and they would give that out... Um, give that then to be used, of course, in the temple and feeding of priests, and all those sorts of things. So tithing is a good thing. It is according to the law. But here's the problem. So, And like I said, you can even see Jesus commends that this law is being taught. But the Pharisees are doing this and preaching this, good, well, and fine and all. But these things are being done. Well, you know, these minor laws of tithing, well, more important ones like, oh, I don't know, um, the, the words of Micah chapter 6, verse 8, that God has told them, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God? Or in our text, just three words, justice, mercy, mercy and faithfulness. So the Pharisees seek to follow God's tithing commandment, which is important. But all the while, they are at the same time refusing to forgive people, and they are devouring the property of widows and orphans, stealing it from them. Hence, Jesus actually calls them hypocrites, since they're focused on the minor little laws at the expense of the major and larger things. And Jesus is telling them, you've got to keep them all, guys. You can't pick and choose and then say to yourself, oh, I'm, I'm holy and I teach rightly because I'm, I'm teaching on, on tithing. No, like we talked about, this is the whole counsel of God, and you're ignoring the heart of the counsel of God for this tithing portion, yet you leave justice and mercy and faithfulness untouched. What are you doing? Right. The the image there of, of straining out a gnat and, and swallowing a camel fits in, in perfectly <laughs> with that, that, that same conversation. So then Jesus, again, he, he moves on into woes number five and six, which, which seem to have a, a similar image. Both talk about what's on the outside versus what's on the inside. What's, what's Jesus doing in woes number five and six in verses 25 through 28? 
Yeah, so Jesus, having condemned tithing, their practice of tithing right now, not, not that it's bad, but just that they're not holding to the, the core of it while they're also proclaiming tithing. He uses another pharisaical practice um, that is debated among their midst about, you know, washing vessels and cleaning them, you know, all of that sort of stuff. And he uses this, what they do, as an illustration um, to teach them and the people how they are focusing on and misinterpreting Scripture, focusing on the wrong things, misinterpreting Scripture, and actually habituating this into the people that God has entrusted to them. So, by trusting in and focusing on their own works for purifications of sin, and not Jesus, who is the Messiah, who will be high and lifted up for them on the cross and shed his blood, that we and they might be cleansed from sin. In teaching contrary to that and focusing on you know, works, they're doing little more than washing an outside of a cup. You know, in essence, you can look at it and, oh, the cup looks beautiful, but you look at the inside and, man, it is, it is stained and it is filthy, and who wants to drink out of that? And the stain and filth that Jesus talks about specifically is their greed, self-indulgence, and lawlessness. That is to say, hey, you may have duped everybody else, guys. You may be called Pharisees, the ones who are better or greater or more perfect than everybody else. But your name actually is, is not a help here. It, it betrays you because the fact of the matter is you're not better than anybody else. You're in the same boat as them. You're, you're not perfect. You don't follow the law, God's law, like you think you do. In fact, and here we get into whitewashed tomb stuff, you all look like a bunch of whitewashed tombs. And there's the other analogy beyond just the cup and the, fil- the clean outside and the filth inside of it. You look like washed white tomb, or whitewashed tombs. And Pastor Apple, you, know, you and I can go to a cemetery right now in Texas, and, you know, we can wash a gravestone, we can clip the grass around it, and make it look all pristine and beautiful. But at the end of the day, as pristine and as neat and as beautiful as you can make a cemetery look, don't ignore the substance of a cemetery. Don't ignore what's inside of it. I mean, you can dress up a cemetery all you want, but at the end of the day, what's, what's the, at the heart of the cemetery is a filthy, rotting, dead corpse, right? Bones. Dead bones, our Lord says. And that's what he says, you know, you, you look all great and you're focusing on these works. Everybody sees how pristine you are, but you, you're not pristine. You're a filthy, rotting, dead corpse like the rest of everyone, and you need a savior. You're not as pure in, in God's eyes as you think you are. Uh, so, you know, repent before it is too late. Stop before it is too late. Stop walking in the broad road that leads to death, the road of your own works and trusting in yourself for salvation. And look actually to me. Believe in me. Uh, this is the, the heart and substance of it, that the, that the narrow road is Christ, and they're ignoring it. Yeah, I'm, I'm reminded of what we were saying earlier about what what's at the heart of, of Christianity, that it's it's not finally about having your best life now or, or fixing the outward actions. Rather, it's about having purity, cleanness from the blood of Jesus Christ shed for you. And, and as, as we were talking about this, I'm, I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of King David in the Old Testament and the circumstances that lead up to him writing Psalm 51, creating me a clean heart. Think, think about David at the end of 2 Samuel 11, how he looks outwardly to the people. He, he looks like a, a conquering hero who's now taking in uh, a poor widow. Oh, what, a, what a nice man. And, and oh, they're having a child, right? Everything looks great for David there. Inwardly, he's a, he's a tomb. He's, he's, he's dead because of his, his sins against the Lord. And Psalm 51, which we sing in our offertory, at least here, here in Grace, we sing it every week, as creating me a clean heart, is, is his prayer of recognition for what the Pharisees have failed to recognize, that, that inside, that, that, that sin that dwells within us, that's what needs the cleansing. And, and, and that, that's where Christianity has something that no other religion has. Absolutely. I mean, this is the heart and substance of Christianity. And we even, you mentioned the liturgy and what we, what we sing there, but even, even one of our hymns, 
nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. I mean, this is, this is the heart of the Christian faith. I have no hope, I have no life, I have no, no salvation. I cannot be perfect. I need a Savior, I need someone to rescue me. His name is Jesus Christ, who has lived the perfect life and has been obedient unto death, death on the cross. He knew no sin, but became sin for me, so that I might become the righteousness of God. And that righteousness, that holiness, that perfection, that beauty, is a gift. It's God's grace. I can't earn it. I don't deserve it, but man, God freely gives me it because he is a God of the living and not the dead. He loves life, and he who created me and breathed into my nostrils the breath of life so does not wish to throw that life away, and so he would rather die than for us to spend eternity apart from him. And then he comes in the in, in weekly and breathes on me that life-giving breath and says, I forgive you all your sins, and we live, and we move, and we have our being in Jesus and him alone. That brings us then to the seventh and final woe, which begins in verse 29 of the text. It, it seems that Jesus is bringing things to a climax here in, in the woes as he begins to talk about the history of the scribes and Pharisees, their fathers, what they did, and now how the scribes and Pharisees are going to bring that to fulfillment now in this generation. What's going on in woe number seven, Pastor Philippeck? Yeah, so this is, like you said, a, a culmination, a summary of everything that has, he's already said to them. And so now he actually turns his attention to Israel as a whole, the history of Israel. And what I would say here to simply by way of summary, uh, short, sweet, and to the point, Jesus essentially says this to the Pharisees. Look, your forefathers, Israel of old, they stoned and killed the prophets I sent to them. Think of Jeremiah. Think of Ezekiel. Think of Isaiah. Think of how they were received, right? They wanted nothing to do with my prophets and my word of promise that they proclaimed. And guess what? You're no different. That same blood that runs through their veins runs through yours. So go on, prove me right, fulfill the measure of your fathers. That is, go on and do what you want to do. Stone and kill the greatest of all these prophets. The, not, not just a prophet, but the God-man who stands before you. Do what you are dead set on doing. Cry out. Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. And then put the righteousness of, my, of the blood that is shed upon yourselves and upon your children by saying, let his blood be upon us and on our children. Those words they will speak in Matthew chapter 27. But Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, death to you, for you reject me. And if you reject me, then you reject the one who sent me. And rejecting the one who sent me, you number yourselves not among God's children, but among the children of Beelzebub, you know, the, the, the devil, Satan. And so in so doing, you choose death rather than receive the life that I so freely, by grace, give you. So there, there's the end of these seven woes. And Pastor Phil Peck, at the, at the beginning of the, the show, when we were talking about context, you, you mentioned how as, as the previous chapters have progressed, especially since Palm Sunday back in chapter 21, we have seen the hatred toward Jesus intensify. They, they line up one after another to come at Jesus, to test him, to try to trap him. And each time Jesus evades their trap, he speaks the truth and their hatred for him intensifies. And, and now we've got these, these, this long section of Jesus woes. And, and from a human perspective, it, it might be easy to see this as Jesus hatred intensifying as, as his, like this is his parting shot against them because he hates them. That might be true, except, except for what we get here at the end of our text. In, in verses 37 through 39, no longer is Jesus speaking with woe. His, his tone changes and, and it's different. What do we see in verses 37 through 39? We see the heart of our God. Yeah. Through what you said, you could easily somehow make the case, if that's all that you had, that, that the Pharisees' hatred of Jesus is ramping up and Jesus is you know, hating them. But to do that, then you would have to make Jesus a sinner. And that wouldn't 
exactly, Joe, with the rest of everything that is written uh, in this book. But what it also does then here is you make this turn, and and you get to see why Jesus is speaking this harshly. He's speaking this harshly to the Pharisees, the scribes, and anybody there who's listening, so that they actually do turn from their sin in repentance and faith and live. So what you should see in these words is, yeah, not joy and delight. I mean, this does not bring Jesus joy and delight to speak these words. He must speak them. He must speak the words of the law to them because they are an heir. But God does not rejoice in the death of the wicked. He does not rejoice in the death of a sinner. Would that all turn and live to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's what God desires. To come to the knowledge of the truth that salvation, that purity, that forgiveness, that righteousness is found in no one else but Jesus in him alone. And firmly believing this then, that all people would have eternal life in him, in his kingdom, with him, that has no end. So notice the tenderness, actually. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you can almost just hear these words dripping with lament and sorrow and anguish, because this is not how things are supposed to be. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, right? And then he uses this image of a hen gathering the chicks under her wings, that they would be protected from danger and that they would live. But this image is is not foreign to Scripture. It's rather very proper to it in psalmody. I mean, Psalm 94, or sorry, Psalm 91, verse 4, rather, He will cover me with His pinions, and under His wings you will find refuge. Psalm 17, verse 8, Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 36, How precious is your loving kindness, O God, and the children of men, Take refuge in the shadow of your wings. So notice all of these different things here. As Psalm 57 is another one of them. Right? Be gracious to me, O God. Be gracious to me, for my soul takes refuge in you, and in the shadow of your wings I will take refuge until destruction passes. So Pastor Apple, this, this lament, this weeping, is, this mourning is, is for Israel. Right standing before him, and Israel is of, of old, And even Israel, you know, throughout their whole entire history, those who have rejected him and stoned the prophets that are sent to him, even even today, I mean, Jesus' lament is for the stubborn, stiff-necked people, like us, who even though God desires them to be saved by his grace alone, and to cover them with the shadow of his wings, to protect them and guard them against their enemies' sin and death and the devil, they continually refuse to trust in him alone for their righteousness, holiness, perfection, and beauty. They would rather trust in their own works. They would rather be duped by themselves into thinking that, you know, they're trying hard, they're better than most, and so that's okay. God looks at that and says, that, you know, at least you are trying. This guy isn't so, you know, well done, good and faithful servant. But all of that is a lie. Unless you are perfect, like your heavenly Father is perfect, you won't get into heaven. Which means that none of us deserve to get in. None of us, in and of ourselves, can call ourselves good. And all of us deserve the eternal and everlasting punishment. But God desires not the death of a sinner. And so he sends forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem us who are under the law, that we might receive adoption as his sons, that that Jesus might spread out his arms, spread out his wings on the cross, and draw all people under his protection and care. But they refuse to be gathered under his cross. That is, they reject God's grace and mercy shown in the outstretched arms of Jesus. And they favor their own works and try to make their own righteousness. And in so doing, again, they choose the broad road of death rather than, than receiving and walking in the narrow road of life, who is Jesus. This, this text is, I mean, the, the tragedy of it. As, as you said, you know, you see the, the love, the tenderness of Jesus, right? He does not, he does not hate these scribes and Pharisees. He does not hate Jerusalem. The exact opposite. He is, he loves them. He, he speaks with such tenderness and, and yet they, they would not. The, the tragedy there that, that those whom Jesus loves and desires to be saved 
would reject him. It's, it's just, I mean, the, there's nothing but, but sorrow there for, for the Lord and, and for all who belong to him. And, and yet, Pastor Philip, it seems that there is hope, or, or is, is there hope in this text? We've got about three and a half minutes here on the morning. Sure. So, yeah, notice, the, notice those words. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the son of the prophets, how I would have gathered you. Right? How I long to gather you. So that's what, that's what Jesus is about. He longs to gather them. His, his love is shown there for all people throughout all time on the cross. And then that, those words, you will not be, you have not been willing. So the responsibility is solely on them for not being gathered. And the responsibility is solely on God for actually gathering and enlightening and calling to faith. But it seems like, oh man, there's just no hope once you say you would not and your house is left desolate. But in 39, we get a bit of a, a, bit of a glimpse of hope. There is hope in this text, and the hope actually stands before them. He is the one who is speaking to them. The hope that we have is Jesus, who is calling them and all people who hear these words to repent of their sin, to trust not in their own works, not in the princes in, of this world, not in the horses and chariots, but rather in Jesus and Him alone. And if we, who are blind, by the grace of God, hear these words of woe, and by the Spirit of God, working through those words in repentance and faith, cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, then like St. Paul's baptism, the scales of blindness fall from our eyes so that we are no longer blind, but we actually see Jesus rightly as our Lord and Savior. And we cling to him alone then, our hope our righteousness, our purity, our salvation, our forgiveness, our life, trusting not in our works, but in His work, in His all-availing sacrifice, and being washed then clean in the blood of the Lamb, we will not die, but we will finally truly live and be free as free men are given to be. We will live, we will move, we will have our being in Christ alone. So we should hear these words of lament, and by the Spirit of the Lord, Take them to heart and know that we can and are saved because our God has been high and lifted up and loved us in that way unto death, even death on the cross. Pastor Adam Filipek is the pastor at Holy Cross Lutheran Church and Emmanuel Lutheran Church, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota, helping us this morning with Matthew chapter 23, verses 13 through 39. Pastor Filipek, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Jesus speaks harsh words to the scribes and Pharisees. There's no way around it. The way that the scribes and Pharisees are walking is the broad way that leads to death. But he calls them away from that road, just as he calls you and me away from that broad road that leads to death and into the narrow way. Himself, he who is the way, the truth, and the life, our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who longs to gather us under his wings. And so he stretched out his arms on the cross to gather us to make us his own people, that we might live under him in his kingdom, free from sin, death, and the devil, living under his grace. That is the reality that he gives to you and to me because he loves us. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. <music>